The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. And I think most of you know we're going to meet the next uh, tonight and then the next two Wednesdays and just have a little bit more structured um, time to understand the basic components of what we call mindful awareness practice. You know, we say meditation, but it's actually meant to be all day long. And the formal sitting time is really a time, you know, where you find a corner of your apartment or house, preferably a place that's not too cluttered, you're not where your bills are or things that are going to evoke a lot of thinking, right? And you have a place, a cushion or a chair, maybe looking out a window, whatever you think might work best. Maybe if you can, the pet's in the other part of the place and your cell phone is completely off and the people you live with know to leave you alone for 20 minutes or 30 minutes, whatever amount of time you have. And ideally, if you, if you have enough space, that little corner, that cushion or chair, you're just using for meditation because then, as you're doing your day, every time you see that place in your living room or bedroom or wherever it is, it reminds you, it's sort of a symbol, I care about mindful awareness. And I care enough to have a place in my house, <laughs> you know, that's all about that. And you might, you know, if you like things like an altar, you can make an altar, but you just do it the way you put on that altar things that for you evoke the basic values of our practice, which is to be really bright or alert or present and really serene, relaxed and trusting. And just think of that's the simplest way to organize, like what are we doing or what are the values behind what we're doing? And it's really this, I was just saying this to Marilyn during the break, it's really this coming together, and it seems a little paradoxical that the heart can be both really bright, alert, lots of energy, but that energy is in a potential state. It's not, if it's not grounded, that energy makes us feel restless. But we can be really bright, lots of energy, but the energy doesn't have to do anything. It's not neurotic. It's just settled. But it doesn't mean there's not a lot of energy. And that subtleness then matures into a really profound tranquility. We feel really calm, really settled. That word samadhi, you know, that we use for that unification, there's a sense of solidity even. You might, some of you who've been meditating or if you've just had times in your life where you had a lot of that samadhi, it's like, I can move but my body doesn't want to move. It's just solid. And there's a sense of the body-mind integration. Like, it's not like two things. It's just like, here and now. And sometimes we characterize it as still, or solid, stable, unified, gathered, settled. You know, these are words we use. And that's, we're, we're, and that the relaxation combined with the brightness makes the mind, we say in the Buddhist tradition, wildy or nimble or capable of seeing what it hasn't seen, capable of insight. 
because of superficiality and distractedness and basically all day long our minds are pushed and pulled by our likes and dislikes. And it's not even sort of what's right in front of us because I can generate all kinds of likes and dislikes in my own mind. Two weeks ago that person said this to me and then I got a big dislike, right? Or that cabin in the north shore of Lake Superior and then I got the like. And it's like um, a little bait because when I have a, something that my mind likes, it kind of leans forward and begins to speculate and proliferate and imagine. And, and even though it's not real, that cabin on the North Shore, the thought of it gives, me, gives the body-mind a little hit, doesn't it? A little excitement, and that juice leads to more thinking, and it's like an, an addiction. Same thing with things that generate rage or anger. The Buddha calls anger murderously sweet. It's like, it really hurts anger, but it's juicy too. <laughs> Self-righteousness, or that's why we revisit our old wounds, because, you know, that even strangely thoughts that make us feel like a victim, there's a certain juice, you know, we feel real, even though I'm really hurting. So this is, the normal mind is getting pushed and pulled by our likes and dislikes, our fear and our hope, and the mind then remains not integrated with the present moment, because it's in its imagining of my likes and dislikes, my fears and my hopes. I'm not saying we shouldn't ever think about these things, I'm just saying it's like an addiction. So when we train the mind, and this really is a training that we're doing, we use something like the body scan, or just being, just starting feeling the whole body, or starting feeling the breath first, just like at the tip of the nose, or feeling the breath as that movement of the abdomen rises with the in-breath and falls with the out-breath, or the expansion of the ribcage and contraction with the out-breath. So wherever, however it's easy to feel something that's here and now, like the breath or the whole of the body, and it's like we train the mind to be curious with the way it is, and to do that, to be really intimate with the breath or the whole body, the mind has to allow everything else to fall into the background because I can't be thinking about what I'm going to make for breakfast when I'm connecting and sustaining attention with the breath coming in. So we don't try to get rid of thought, we try to get interested in something in the present moment. And distractions tend to retreat into the background, into the periphery. That's a really important point, because like, you know, some of us said in the go-round, you know, we can really feel like sometimes really tormented by the ongoing mind stream of thought and worries and hopes and imaginings and planning and remembering and comparing mind and, you know, it's endless. And then if we don't like that, if we think it should be there, then we have a war going on <laughs> inside of our mind. So when you notice that there is this mental proliferation, it's really important to have a friendly relationship with it. Oh yeah, of course. 
Of course the mind's thinking. This is what the mind has been conditioned to do. Think about this, think about that, think about what I like, think about what I don't like, think about what bad thing might happen, think about what good thing might happen, think about the past, think about the future. And it will do that forever because there's just enough juiciness in that mental proliferation to keep it going. Because as soon as we run out of the juice for one particular thought stream, what do we do? It's, it's sort of like the mind looks for something else juicy, jumps to that, follows that until, it's like chewing gum. You know, you chew it until there's no more sugar in it, and then what do you, you put another stick of chewing gum in. Chew the, and on and on, till your jaw is too sore <laughs> to keep doing it. And then you go to bed, and you wake up, and you put another stick of chewing gum in. And we want to see that endlessness of that, but it's, we don't want to see it, we want to see it from that more stable place of samadhi, that settledness. Because then we won't be afraid of it, and we won't be reactive to it. But initially, train yourself, remind yourself to have a friendly relationship to distraction. And that's another reason, like tonight and then the weeks coming up, um, it's so nice, like the group that Matthew's leading the first Wednesday, and then I'll come out most of the third Wednesdays, but there will always be some teacher here on the third Wednesday of the month. Because the group, just hearing from people at those two meetings, it, it normalizes how challenging it is to really observe the mind and body as it is. It's just not our habit. Our habit is to be swept away in ways that we've been swept away in the past. And to cultivate this new habit of being aware without in, being entangled with the pain in the body, like several of you mentioned, Joan with the itch and Danielle with the sharp pain in the back. It's so easy when there's something strong like that to think about it. And so there's this dance between the physical pain or physical sensation and our thoughts. And it's like forever that like, oh yeah, this really bothers me. You know, why is this happening? And we feel that and then it triggers the next thought about it. And so we break that cycle. We generally take something that's neutral. And for this first week and for a long time, it could be, I'll just give you three things and just choose what you want to to use as your primary meditation object, let's call it, or sometimes we refer to it as an anchor or a primary meditation object. So either the breath as a natural phenomena, wherever that's easy for you to feel, not the idea of the breath, of course you might have the idea of the breath or the, even a mental image, but the physical sensations usually rising and falling of the belly or the touching as it goes in and out of the nostrils or just a more general sense of the ribcage expanding and contracting. That's one possibility. The other is the whole body, not discriminating totality of the whole body sitting, pleasant and unpleasant sensations and neutral sensations. That's your second option. And then the third is hearing. But you're not trying to hear a particular sound, all the ambient sounds together. And that hearing is nice, is 
because it can evoke more of a receptive, spacious. The breath is nice because it's changing, right? There's, and it's it just, uh, just like that constant change of the breath kind of can uh, really help the mind learn about continuity. And uh, the whole body is really good because it lends itself for daily life practice. Like if we're trained to be intimate with the body, then when we get up from the sit, we can come back to mindful awareness quite easily. Because our anchor is like right there, when we're reaching or standing or sitting or lying down or whatever we're doing with our body, we can, that's like a new habit the mind has to be with the totality of the bodily experience, whatever that is in that moment. And you'll work with all three, but one should be your go-to place. So when you're sitting and you've settled, you've made your adjustments, you might even take a few moments at the beginning of your set just to directly in your own experience remember what awareness is. And awareness is recognizing that without Mark doing anything, there's awareness. Like just check in your own mind, your own heart right now. Is there awareness? And are you doing that awareness? I mean, in sort of conventional language we say, you know, I'm aware, we use the personal pronoun, but the fact is it's just part of the nature of the mind, right? To be aware, it's almost like there's a mirror. It's not a perfect simile, and I think I mentioned it in in November or whenever, when I was here earlier, but it's like there's a mirror that just, its job is simply to reflect back to the mind itself what's being known. So there's consciousness, but when we use the word mindful awareness or the words mindful awareness, we mean that the mind is aware of what it's conscious of. Because, you know, most of you drove here. You were presumably conscious when you drove here. But were you aware of what the mind was knowing when you drove here? Probably, maybe in a few moments, that probably 95% of the moments, there wasn't that mindful awareness. Oh, seeing is being known. Or touching of the steering wheel is being felt. Right? So when we, when we talk about mindful awareness, we're not talking about being conscious, although it's related. We're talking about this reflective knowing. So there's part of the mind that knows what the mind is knowing. That's an easy way to define it for yourself. Like, what's mindfulness again? Because you'll forget. It's, it's weird in a way, like that we're just, we just haven't gotten interested in the mind. So, oh yeah. There's consciousness, like, you know, when we touch something, there's an, there's that conscious, consciousness of the hardness or whatever. But I can, there's this additional thing, like, the mind can know that it's experiencing the hardness of the wood. And that knowing, that reflective knowing is happening here and now. And that's really what we're trying to establish because that mindful awareness is really the place where learning happens. In In particular, learning about the causes for stress and the causes for release.
which is what our heart actually cares about more than anything. Even if it doesn't say that. <laughs> the heart doesn't want to suffer, doesn't want to be burdened. It wants to be unburdened, but because we're not mindfully aware, a lot of what we do each day ends up being a cause for stress. But it's not because we're stupid or bad, it's because we don't have this basis of reflective awareness to illuminate cause and effect. And that's what mindful awareness does, is it illuminates the conditional or lawful or cause and effect nature of each moment. Oh, when I, like your partner, if you're married or good friend, might have done something, said something that really irritates you. So here we are, we're doing our day, whatever, at work or at home. And part of the mind is just stewing about this friend or this partner who did something wrong in terms of, at least as we see it. And in the way we're kind of stewing about this problem, you know, it affects everything we do, it affects everything we perceive. You know, our whole day is being colored by that anger, that upsetness, right? You know this experience? It's not just me, right? So, but then, because now we've been practicing, mindful awareness is likely to kick in at some point, and that's the reason we have our formal, whatever, 30 minutes in the morning or whatever you can squeeze into your life. Some people do a little in the morning and a little in the evening. But because of that formal practice, then more and more moments, mindfulness will just return. So there you are stewing about something that happened the day before, and all of a sudden, mindfulness is there. But it's not there to judge, it's just there like holding up a mirror. And so wisdom in the mind realizes, oh, there's aversion, there's irritation, there's anger, it feels like this, it looks like this. And because of that reflective knowing, like there's anger and the mind knows that there's anger, there's irritation and the mind knows that there's irritation, there's tension in the body and wisdom knows that there's tension in the body. So wisdom starts to connect the dots. Oh, when the mind is attached or identified with some story, you did me wrong, then this gets set in motion. This tension, this stress, this heavy, these heavy thoughts. These are the natural fruits when the mind is relating with hate, with anger, with victimization even, right? And again, it's not a judgment it's not like a scolding parent, you, you fool, you shouldn't be relating that way. It's really this wisdom that just is seeing cause and effect. And that's what breaks habits. So if we have a habit of lusting after things we don't have or wanting revenge for people that have hurt us or whatever patterns that we later discover are not so helpful, we just need to see them honestly, clearly, with no agenda except to want to see clearly and honestly. That is what changes these habits. Same with wholesome habits, helpful habits. 
when we're generous or when we're spacious or when we're, you know, fearless or when we're clear or when we're, you know, um, balanced, then when mindfulness returns and the mind, the wisdom in the mind realizes, oh, there's a lot of balance now. And it connects the dot. Oh, when there's a lot of balance, it's like the mind, the heart, the body has Teflon. Nothing sticks. Oh, this really helps. And the mind, over time, sees what doesn't help in terms of attitudes and views and ways of relating and what does help. And this isn't knowledge received from some wise person out there. We're seeing it directly in our own experience. That's why it uproots the habit. It begins to change habits. Like Joe said, you know, he's beginning, he's not sure yet, but he's beginning to sense that there's some changes. And that's exactly what happens. The more there's mindful awareness, it just starts to creep in. It's not just when we're sitting formally, but those moments of sitting formally plant seeds that then sprout during the day. And then the more we sit, and then some people do a month of sitting, you know, where it's not all day long, of course, but, you know, it's just trying to create conditions where there are more moments of mindfulness, and we're really building that momentum. So, as you dig into the practice, you might feel this resolve growing in your heart to be mindfully aware all the time. What is it that we couldn't do, you know, that we have to do in our lives? Wouldn't, what wouldn't be done better if we were mindfully aware? When would mindful awareness actually get in the way? Think about, like, really think about today and the last few days. And imagine yourself having that stable balance where the body-mind is tranquil, settled, but also really clear, just with one sort of resonating desire, just want to see things as they are, just want to be close. So when would that be problematic in your life? What kind of condition? Actually, I know where it doesn't work. When I want to be mean, (laughs) it doesn't help to be present. Because, like, when we want to be a jerk, it's like, if you see it clearly, nobody wants to be a jerk and see it clearly. Nobody wants to go numb or disconnect when you see it clearly. Nobody chooses to be numb. We do. We go to numb, closing down, whatever, because we're not really noticing the consequences. Same with rage. You know, it's like a wildfire just burns everything around us, including us, you know, when we're really angry. We would never do it if we really saw And when I say anger, I don't mean speaking loudly, because there's ways to speak really strongly and loudly from a really wholesome place of compassion, you know, a fierce compassion. I'm talking about this, um, you know, wanting to burn it down kind of attitude. We're hurting. You notice that about hurting? When we're really hurting, we want everyone to hurt. And... uh, so what, what we want to do, especially in these first three weeks, if you're relatively new, is just get a sense of, oh, 
I really value this. Because it takes some time to retrain the mind from our, you know, pretty chronic habits of distractedness and superficiality and being on autopilot. And frankly, that's, you know, a lot of our habit energy is at that end, right? And we're, once we value, unless we value mindfulness, we're not going to make the effort to really train the mind to be intimate. I like the one teacher described the sort of goal, I guess you could say, of practice as this marriage of intimacy and non-grasping. So being really present, open, even in a way exposed to our life as it actually is, exposed to the moment as it actually is, and not afraid, not tight. But that doesn't mean we're going to be this sort of doormat that everybody walks over. Just because we're open and not tight, it actually allows us to be more nimble in how we appropriately respond in the moment. So if if the moment, like I said a moment ago, demands some loud voice, speaking truth to power, then we can do that. Or the moment the appropriate response is to be quiet, then we can do that. Because we're, we know how to be present, then our action isn't because I'm uncomfortable being intimate. I know how to be intimate with what's going on. So any response what I think, what I say, what I do, is really a way to take care of everyone. As opposed to, I'm really uncomfortable being in my skin right now, so I'm going to do something because I don't want to be here and now. Right? Have you noticed that a lot of our actions is running away from the yucky feeling that we don't want to feel, so we just keep busy. So part of what we're doing is learning to be right in the middle of our life, which of course at times is unpleasant, and then our response can arise out of love, basically, self-compassion, compassion for all, not because we don't know how to be present with what's happening. And I'll just end with an example. Um, Matthew and I were talking earlier today, and Matthew's going to do a Buddhist chaplaincy program and uh, I'm sure many of you have had this experience of being around people either in the dying process or a good friend who's sick in the hospital or whatever it might be, a child that was going through a really difficult spell and you, you just sort of held space for them. And to do that, to really do that, to be a good friend or a good son or daughter, whatever, in that setting, we have to learn how to be upright, alert, and completely relaxed, not afraid that sometimes people are in a lot of pain or sometimes people are really confused. And I don't have an answer, but I know how to not be afraid. I know how to be alert, bright, intimate, and not afraid. That doesn't mean we have the answer, but we know how to show up. And, and this is like a practical way that these teachings really help us, or these trainings really help us. So when we're in our little corner of our living room doing our daily practice, 
you know, the conditions hopefully are relatively tame, you know, not too wild, the house isn't burning down, and the dog isn't vomiting, hopefully. And because of that, we get easy conditions to practice being really alert and really relaxed. So it's like kindergarten. Your daily sit is like kindergarten, and then after your 30-minute daily sit or whatever, then you're in, you know, either high school or graduate school, or it's going to be more complicated going to work, being with your families, or whatever it is. But we really benefit from building the success of kindergarten, putting that time in that where the conditions are relative, relatively easy, where we can just sit right in the middle of our life, we can practice peeling off the armor, being more exposed to our life, and we're learning how to meet, you know, to really show up in these difficult times that are going to come our way, or these beautiful times that are going to come our way, and how to be really relaxed and clear in those moments so we can respond appropriately. We don't even need a plan because just being really present, the appropriate response will come out of that presence. Not because we were told what to do when we're in a situation like that, but because we're really there, completely there, sensitive, no agenda. And that gives us a flavor like why we might do the practice. Because, you know, there's a lot we need to do in our lives and to get over here on Wednesday night and to find time to sit in the day and cultivate friends that are into the practice is important. Because culturally, we're all about distraction. So if you want to train your heart to value non-distraction, you need some friends that are into it too, <laughs> right? Because it's hard to do things without friends that are into it as well. So I think that's about all I have time for. We have time maybe for a couple questions. And then next week I'll mention, you know, I'll talk a little bit about motivation how to work with obstacles in meditation and walking meditation practice. So what will help next week is if you like to journal or just take a note or make a mental note, what gets in the way of your continuity of mindful awareness? And we heard a number of things mentioned, pain, thought. And then what helps when you have pain? What helps when you have thought? The, you know, the sort of waterfall of thought. What doesn't help? And then bring that back next week to report in so we learn from each other's experience. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.